man, I'm so blessed to uh, have that greeting, especially from Miriam. It's really Miriam Apollo's fault that Keith and I started this bromance that we have from five years ago. It's really a huge blessing that we got to meet at their wedding, and then that led to our relationship with this church and uh, this church praying over us and sending us to the other side of the world, to Amman, Jordan, in the Middle East. As I shared with the, the men yesterday morning, I said, you know, you got to come. You got to come to Jordan. I'm going to try to get a group from here to come. And one of the main reasons, of course, you get to see the great work that the Lord's doing, but you also get to go to Petra, one of the wonders of the world. And Petra, if you don't know, that's where Indiana Jones found the Holy Grail, the actual cup of Christ. We were talking about the Lord's Supper, the actual cup Jesus used, and they have it in a little box, but you can't touch it because you can't pass this certain. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it's, they really don't have the Holy Grail in case I don't want y'all to think I'm lying to you. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. Amen? Those are the mighty words the Apostle Paul wrote to the intellectual, the political, the economic, the everything center of the world of his day, Rome. The center of the Roman Empire was Rome, the land of the Caesars. It ruled over about a third of the world at the time. And Paul said just a few verses before that, I am indebted, I am obligated. The whole world is my parish, is basically what he's saying. He's saying, I am obligated, I am indebted to the Greek and the barbarian, to the wise and the foolish. I owe it to everybody to preach the gospel. And I'm so eager, he says in the next verse, I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, as he's not been there yet. Paul was a man on mission. He was a man on mission. He eagerly desired to preach the gospel in Rome. And as you'll, as we'll see, even lands, unknown lands, distant, far beyond Rome, where Christ is not named. You know, from all my study of church history, and I've studied it a lot, I love church history. My two greatest inspirations for this kind of pioneering, trailblazing missions and missionary zeal are obviously one, the Apostle Paul. The second one, though, is not as well known, but it's an 18th century group, that movement that started uh, in the 18th century called the Moravians. So Paul and the Moravians are my greatest inspiration. In fact, it's examples like them that largely inspired my wife and I, to move across the, across the world. We had a house in Frisco for eight years, had jobs, had everything. We sold everything and went to the other side of the world. And, it's, and it was ultimately sourced in the desire to see those where Christ is not named, the lost, the unreached in the world, hear the gospel, to hear that Jesus is Lord, to hear what Christ had done for them. And I told you, you know, two years ago when we were here and y'all prayed over us to, to when we first left, things I hope to happen. And God, praise God, many of those things have happened. Refugees have come to Christ. I've been able to train and teach pastors from all over that part of the world at this amazing seminary right in the heart of the Middle East and the Muslim nation, given the approval by the government in this Muslim nation, an incredible miracle in and of itself, but I've trained these pastors and they're going out into Syria, they're going in, back into Iraq where uh, places that ISIS was in control of for the last four years are now liberated and Christians are for the first time going back. Some of my students are going there 
just able to be a part of so many things. So you guys are a part of that. So thank you so much for praying for us. And God willing, like I said, you're going to come. You're going to come. I'm going to take you to the, to the Holy Grail. But to be clear, every follower of Jesus Christ is called to be on mission. Whether you share the gospel with your neighbor, in school, in colleges, at work, at Starbucks, in prisons, everywhere, anywhere, you are on mission. We are all missionaries. This is definitely the, the, king, the, the priesthood of believers. This is, this is clearly what the New Testament teaches. We are all missionaries. And praise the Lord, I know, City Church, this church, is a church on mission led by a man on mission, Pastor Keith. So you need to be so thankful for having a leader like Keith because it's rare to have pastors that are on mission. I'll just share a quick story. Just right when we, we came, we, we got to get lunch. Uh, uh, we, we, we came back to the States about six weeks ago, and uh, Keith and I got, got lunch together, and uh, we were ordering. And when we ordered our food, by the time of us ending the order of our food, Keith had already shared the love of Christ with the lady behind. And later when we were eating, she came by and asked for prayer for, for something going on in her life. So that's, that's what it means to be on mission. That's what it means to be on mission, wherever you go, to share the love of Jesus. So I want to spend the t- our time this morning looking at Paul and the Moravians to inspire us all to be on mission. And maybe even inspire some of you to go, to go to some distant land on that map right back there of the world, some distant land where Christ is not named. Because Jesus will not return until the poorest villager in the poorest village on earth has heard about his love, has heard that his blood was shed for them, that he died for them. This is ultimately why we do missions. This is why we do it. Whether we're on mission here, as I said, or on the other side of the world, we must, as we sang, we must proclaim the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. This, this mandate from the Lord as he left, as he ascended to heaven, was very clear. He did not stutter. He said, this gospel of the kingdom will be, not may, not might, not may, will be proclaimed to every nation on the earth, and then the end will come, which is another way of saying Jesus will return in glory. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's begin with our first inspiring missionary example, Paul. The great, the great apostle. Paul desired to preach the gospel to those who were in Rome, even though churches had already been established there. As you'll see, he, he had this unique, insatiable desire to preach where Christ is not named. But as he says at the beginning of Romans, he, he wants to preach the gospel anywhere. Even if, the, even if people already know about Jesus, he's going to preach the gospel there. But he had this unique, insatiable desire, this missionary zeal to go where Christ is not known, to trailblaze new frontiers, And we see this most clearly in this somewhat neglected passage in Romans I want to take you to. And neglected, it's amazing to think that a passage in Romans is neglected, but it's in the midst of his travel plans in Romans 15. A lot of times the latter part of Romans 15 and all the greetings in Romans 16, even though there's such richness in there, those get neglected. But in the midst of this section in Romans 15, if you want to turn there, Romans 15 beginning at verse 14, we get this grand plan of Paul's theology of missions. I think more clearly than anywhere else in the New Testament. And we also learn why he has such a pioneering, trailblazing, missionary, zealous spirit. So let's read that, starting at verse 14. 
Paul says, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. I have written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace of God gave me, because the grace of God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and miracles through the power of the the spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see. Those who have not heard will understand. He's quoting there from a great passage in Isaiah. In Isaiah 52 and 53 about the suffering servant saying that Jesus obviously is the fulfillment of that suffering servant. But notice Paul says, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ all the way around from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And Illyricum is not a term we use today. That's actually modern-day Albania and Yugoslavia. And that little summary that I just read to you is basically Paul's summary of his last decade of three missionary journeys, as I, as I heard y'all went through in Acts. He's basically summarizing what has happened over the last 10 years, what has been his main uh, goal. And you can even, it's, it's nice we have this map here, you can even kind of visualize an arc. If you look at the map and you look at Jerusalem, to modern-day Albania, Yugoslavia, you can see this kind of arc, like a half circle, that Paul basically surpassed going across the eastern Mediterranean, proclaiming Jesus is Lord. But does this mean Paul had preached the gospel to every single individual in these nations? Of course not. That would be that would have been impossible even for, for Paul. But missiologists and scholars learn from this Paul's grand design of missionary strategy to fulfill Jesus' great commission. He would, as you see, as you saw when you went through Acts, he would always go to the most influential cities first. He would pass by not, not so influential cities to get to Ephesus, to get to Corinth, to get to Athens. He would then first evangelize in the synagogues. He would go to the marketplaces. He would go to the pagan religious centers. Some would come to Christ. He would then gather them into churches, into really house churches. He would train them up, appoint elders, pastors, teachers, evangelists. And then he would leave. That would be his goal. That's the pioneering, trailblazing plant that that Paul would do. And then he would leave, mainly thinking that these pastors and teachers and evangelists in these local churches now should radiate the gospel outward. And the gospel then will go forth into every village and even the huts. So the poorest villager would hear the gospel. In fact, this is how the Colossian church was planted. Paul didn't plant that church. When you read Colossians, he has never been there. His disciple, Epaphras, from Ephesus, the major city that Paul was at, he spent two years there. Epaphras left Ephesus and planted the church at Colossae, a perfect example of Paul's grand strategy. So as a pioneer, trailblazing missionary, Paul laid the foundation that others would build on. Another example of this is what he says to the church in Corinth. I planted, Paul, I planted, Apollos watered, but God Causes the growth. This is what, what Paul wanted to do. He wanted to be 
I think he was just called to be. This was this was his main gifting to be that pioneering, trailblazing the the Buzz Aldrin of 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 missions and whoever whoever's going to make it to Mars, he'll he'll be that person of uh, mission. He's that person of missions. So as I said, this seems to be God, uh, Paul's grand design to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so he's a sa- he, what he's saying when he says, "I fully preached the gospel from Jerusalem to Yugoslavia." He's saying, "I've done my pioneering work." in those areas. So that way now the gospel can radiate outward. And and 15 verse 20 is very key. Look at verse 20 again when he says, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known or some translation might say was not named. It's always been my ambition. This Greek word, it's a powerful Greek word meaning aspire or strive eagerly Paul has an honorable striving to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. And if you keep reading, guess where this next place is? Paul's going to pass Rome and go where? Where, where? Where's the next frontier for gospel preaching? Spain. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It was Spain. Spain was the lost territory that Paul was so excited to go to. Spain actually represented the unconverted world of the West. It represented the kind of the edge of the Roman Empire and in that day. Augustus Caesar, who Jesus was born under, actually Romanized, colonized and Romanized Spain and other areas like Gaul and Germany and Britain around 50 years before Paul wrote these words in Romans. And so some scholars even think that, well, if Paul knew about Spain, he definitely knew about Germany. He knew about Britain. He knew about who knows what Paul knew about. And he he might have had already in his mind these plans to even do another arc over the edge of the empire uh, what is modern day Europe? Germany and Britain, by the way, just if you know your church history, was one for Christ, but not for another 500 years in the case of Britain and another 800 years in the case of Germany. But the apostle's missionary heart is already inflamed for these lands. And imagine if Paul had been given another decade or two decades to live. Imagine how far he would have got. It's about 50-50. Scholars debate whether he made it to Spain. I think he made it to Spain. But if he had been given another 10 years, another 20 years, he would have definitely made it to Germany. He would have made it to Britain and beyond. It was Paul's great and honorable ambition that drove him to Spain and beyond to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ where he was not known. And this honorable, honorable ambition to be on mission led Paul to one of the great, on one of the greatest human adventures of all human history. I mean, people talk about the Herculean labors, you know, his 12 labors didn't even really happen. I mean, that's just probably a myth anyways. And Odysseus's journey. These are the great stories of the ancient world. None, none compared to Paul. Paul had the greatest human adventures. And you get a taste of this. I just want to give you a taste of this from 2 Corinthians 11. You can turn there, but I have it up on the screen. 2 Corinthians 11, we get a nice supplement to Acts because it's from Paul's own lips, his own pen, telling us, Things he had been experiencing all the way during these three missionary journeys. He wrote Second Corinthians a little before he wrote Romans. And he gives this account of his sufferings and his adventures preaching Christ and him crucified. It's actually known as his fool speech because he focuses on his humiliations and his sufferings rather than things he could have probably bragged about uh, with the uh, false teachers that he's fighting against in, in Corinth at that time. But let, let's just listen to what Paul says. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in the danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews, 39 lashes. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That means with rocks, by the way. I got to clarify that in our, in our day. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was, I have spent in the deep, meaning he was like lost at sea and thought he was going to drown. <laughs> he was probably holding on to some wreckage from a, from a shipwreck. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. What a boring life Paul had. My goodness, why can't he do something with his life? Just sitting at home watching Netflix all the time, binging these shows. What, what, Paul, do something. If you ever find the Christian life boring, you're doing it wrong. You are doing it wrong. To live on mission for Jesus Christ is to live an adventure. In fact, in this autobiography of Paul, only some of what Paul says here actually is an Acts. This is an incredible thing. Luke must have had just this embarrassment of riches of stories to tell about Paul. He doesn't even tell them all. So there's, there has to be so many untold stories of Paul's courage, sufferings, and Herculean labors for Christ that we don't even know about. They are not even recorded. It's, it's just like with the other apostles. We don't have a lot of information. We have the most information of Paul, and we still lack a lot, but we don't have a lot of information about the other apostles. We have little, little hints from tradition. Maybe Thomas made it all the way to India. Maybe Mark made it to Egypt. He was the first to bring the gospel to Egypt. We don't know. We're going to find out one day. But why, Paul? Why go through all this suffering? Why do you have such an insatiable ambition for missions? Why not be like Demas? Remember what Demas did? He's like, oh, forget this missionary work. I'm going to go to Thessalonica. I'm going to go to Vegas. I'm going to go relax. I'm going to go drink a pina colada. I'm just going to go do that. Because he loved this world, Demas has left me and gone to Thessalonica. No, not Paul. Paul has this insatiable ambition for missions, but why? Well, if I could travel back in time and ask Paul himself that question, I think he would give these three answers. And I think I'm being fair to Paul because I'm just going to use his own language. The first is, he would say from 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, the love of Christ compels me. This is foundational. It all begins with the love of Christ. I think Paul understood better what Christ had done for him than I would say anyone else in the last 2,000 years of church history. I mean, think about it. Paul began by persecuting the followers of Jesus, holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen. Later, by his own admission, he forced Christians to blaspheme, meaning he forced them under torture to curse Christ. Paul did this. He put some of them to death even, and he tried to, by his own admission, eradicate, destroy the church of Christ. And then on the way, after doing all this, on the way to persecute and arrest more Christians, Christ then appeared to him. And Christ appeared to him not to destroy him, which you would expect from other gods of the world, but to save him. Christ had mercy on him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul in that moment, and after years of reflection, understood the grace of God, I think, better than anyone else. Think, I mean, he was a seeker. He was not a seeker of Christ. He was not on his way to Damascus seeking Christ. He was seeking to kill followers of Christ. But the love of Christ compelled Paul because I think he thought, if he would save me, the worst of sinners, if he would save me, he would save anyone. He would save anyone. That is what drove him across the empire. As he wrote in his first letter in Galatians, he loved me and gave himself up for me. 
Oh, if Christ crucified would come into our hearts like it was in Paul's heart, how we would all have such missionary zeal. Nothing could stop Paul. A heart like that, nobody could stop it and nothing would stop us. In fact, they did stop Paul, but there was only one way they could do it. You know how they did it? They cut off his head. They cut off his head. That's the only way you can stop someone who's sold out for Christ is you've got to cut off his head or her head. The second reason Paul would give, I think, is what I already quoted. I am not ashamed of the gospel. If there's anybody in the last 2,000 years that wasn't ashamed of the gospel, it was Paul. (laughs) Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you willing to share Jesus with anyone and everyone across the counter when you go eat, the barista, your Uber driver, anyone, everywhere you go? Are you willing to share the gospel? Are you excited to share the gospel of Jesus? I think Paul's echoing actually what Jesus said in the gospels. Paul probably knew this saying of Jesus where Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and wicked generation, I will be ashamed of him or her when I come in glory. And why are you not ashamed, Paul? He says it in the very verse. Why are you not ashamed? Because it is the power. It is the dunamis, a great Greek word, dynamite. It's the power, the ultimate power in the universe. In fact, the power that brought the universe into being. That power, we're told, is in the cross and in the resurrection. And it has the power then for the salvation, for the rescue, for the transformation of everyone who believes. Paul expounds on this in that great passage in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the power of the cross, how he, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Gentile, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, it is the wisdom of God. And Paul's own life had been completely transformed by the power of Christ's resurrection, and so he knew it would transform all the nations one day, including the Roman Empire and beyond. In fact, Pastor Keith mentioned how I I debated Bart Ehrman, if you don't know who he is. He's this agnostic New Testament scholar, very influential, a reason why so many have thrown away their faith, sadly. But I had to read just about everything he wrote, so he did have some gems in that large manure pile of books that I read. And this is one of those gems. He wrote a book called The Triumph of Christianity just a few years ago. And uh, great title already, The Triumph of Christianity. This is in the context of him saying why he wrote it. He's, he's saying what inspired him to write this book. And he, he was at the Areopagus where Paul debated with the philosophers in Athens. And he said this, I, this thought came to him. He says, then the realization struck me. In the end, Paul won. What Paul preached that day on the Areopagus eventually triumphed over everything that stood below me in the Agora and above me on the Acropolis. It overwhelmed both the temple of Hephaestus and the Parthenon. No one except probably Paul himself would have predicted it. He's right. Yet it happened. Christianity eventually took over Western civilization. I think Paul would quibble with that. He would say, no, I didn't win. Christ won. Christ won. Thirdly and lastly, Paul would answer our question with the question. Why do missions, Paul? Why go? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear unless they are sent? This great passage in Romans 10, 14 through 15, I think echoing Jesus's great commission. Paul definitely knew Jesus's great commission that we read in Matthew 28. But Paul had his own great commission. If you remember in Acts, when Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road, remember what he said? He said, you are going to testify about me before the Jews and before the Gentiles and before kings and nations. 
So Paul had his own great commission. And he knew Jesus wouldn't return until it was fulfilled. And so he's asking these questions. How will those in Spain, in Germany, in Britain hear the gospel unless a missionary goes to those unknown lands and proclaims Christ and him risen again? In fact, if you study church history, that's exactly how they came to Christ. How did the barbarians, how did the Anglo-Saxons come to Christ? By the way, they did that ancestry thing with me. You know, Anglo-Saxons, you know, it goes back to England and stuff. You know what they worshipped before they became Christians? Thor. They worship Thor, for goodness sakes. We got to go to them. They're worshiping Thor out there. It's ridiculous. They, they literally did. But it was a missionary who went to them. In fact, his name was Augustine. It wasn't Augustine of Hippo, the famous Augustine. It was another Augustine. Shouldn't be more famous. I mean, he went and preached the gospel to them, and the Anglo-Saxons became followers of Christ. But how will they hear unless someone goes to them? And, and Paul quotes again from that section of Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet that bring the good news. And I think Paul saw himself, he's, he's that beautiful feet. He's saying, I will go. I will be that beautiful feet Isaiah prophesied about and take the gospel where it's not known. And even today in 2019, whenever we take the gospel to those who have not heard, we are fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. We are fulfilling the beautiful feet. And on this challenge, this third challenge, I got to bring out the big guns. I did it with the, the men's group too. We got to bring out Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Spurgeon said this, of course, in the 19th century. And guess where he was? Where was he? Britain. <laughs> he was in Britain. And he says this, to, he said this to his congregation. Can we go to our beds and sleep while China, India, Japan, we got a group in China right now, right? From the church. While China, India, Japan, and other nations are being damned, are we clear of their blood? Have they no claim upon us? We ought to put it on this footing, not can I prove that I ought to go, the normal question we ask, but can I prove that I ought not to go? When a man can prove honestly that he ought not to go, then he is clear, but not else. What answer do you give, my brothers and sisters? How will they hear unless someone goes and tells them about the love of Christ? Let me close with the other most inspiring missionary example in all church history, the Moravians. The Moravians, all of them pioneering, trailblazing missionaries, really 300 Pauls. This is 300 Pauls. You thought one Paul was bad enough, dangerous enough. Imagine 300 of them. In fact, William Carey, most have heard about William Carey. He was one of the founders of the Baptist Missionary Society, considered by many, in fact, when I went to seminary, I was told he was the father of modern missions, the father of Protestant missions. Well, when, before William Carey even set out in the early 1800s, the Moravians had already penetrated every continent on the planet with the gospel. They are the true fathers of Protestant missions, and they inspired William Carey. William Carey is quoted as saying, see what these Moravians have done. Can we not follow their example and in obedience to our heavenly master go into all the world and preach the gospel to the heathen? See what these Moravians have done. Again, the Moravians themselves would have hated that. They would have said, no, look at what Christ has done. Look at what Christ has done. But let's take a moment. I want to give you just a taste of what these Moravians have done. In 1722, so right at about 300 years ago, Count Nicholas Zinzendorf, the father of the Moravians, started a Christian settlement at Hernhut, which is in modern-day Saxony, Germany. And over 300 Moravian, and get this, persecuted refugees, they were refugees at the time, gathered at this settlement. And they were mostly young men and women in their 20s and their 30s. And in 1727, five years later, they had this 
very significant experience. They, Zinzendorf called it a Pentecost experience, another Pentecost. It was a Pentecost of the Holy Spirit. And this led them to do two significant things, things that have influenced the last 300 years, who knows, uh, in, in countless ways. The first one, it led them to start a prayer watch. They started this prayer watch, a 24-hour prayer watch where they assigned the members of their church to pray one hour of every 24-hour day. So everybody in the church had their own hour to keep the, the fire burning like in the temple. And guess how long this lasted? A hundred years. A hundred years is what they said. Can you imagine whoever stopped that? That person's going to be disciplined in the, in the kingdom, but... But 1727 to 1827, this lasted, okay? So that means that for that hundred years, there was a Moravian, wherever he was in the world, or he or she, they were praying, lifting up prayers to God to bring the gospel to all nations, whatever they were praying for during that hour of every hour. Incredible. The second thing they did, what they're mostly known for, is sending out missionaries. They started sending out missionaries out from Hernhut to the ends of the earth. And here's Zinzendorf's most famous saying, as he sent out, the, the, as the missionaries left Hernhut, he would say, you must be content to suffer, to die, and to be forgotten. I'd say that's about as polar opposite from Joel Steen as you're going to get, right? I mean, there, you've got Joel Steen on one side and you've got Zinzendorf on the other. These young Moravian missionaries were the first to preach the gospel to the lepers in South Africa, the Eskimos in Greenland, Native Americans in many parts of America, some of them even sold themselves into slavery so they could preach the gospel to the slaves. These Moravians were indeed fools for Christ, just like Paul. Jesus freaks par excellence. If only we could be like them. And by Zinzendorf's death 30 years later, 226 missionaries had been sent out from Hernhut, and they spanned the globe. I found this online. I don't know who put it together, but it's really cool. You can't really see it because it's kind of small, but basically all those spots on the map, is all the places, the name of the place and the year when the when a Moravian missionary penetrated it with the gospel. And so notice, they hit every continent. And this was within about 100 years of Zinzendorf. They were beasts. Incredible. And so their impact on the next 300 years is just, the last 300 years has been incalculable. We'll only know when we get to heaven. They not only inspired William Carey, but John and Charles Wesley were converted by Moravians. In fact, Wesley tells, the st tells a story in his journal. He actually visited Hernhut. He said it was like the closest thing to heaven he's seen on earth. But he also talks about these sea travels he had. He would you know, travel regularly to preach the gospel in, in, in different, different lands. And he talks about how this storm broke on the ship one time. And he and, he and Charles were on the ship, and they all thought they were going to die. People were shrieking. People were, were, were crying out in terror. But... There were also two Moravian missionaries on the, on, the, on the ship. And he said the Moravian missionaries with their women and children were gathered together and they were singing hymns to God throughout the entire storm. Incredible. And he says, this is right after he tells that story, he says he had a conversation with them after the storm died down. He says, this is John Wesley, he says, I asked one of them afterward, were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. From them, I went, Wesley went to their crying, trembling neighbors and pointed out to them the difference in the hour of trial between him that feareth God and him that feareth him not. At 12, the wind fell. This was the most glorious day, which I have hitherto seen. <laughs> Powerful testimony from Wesley. Should remind you, of course, from Acts, 
I'm sure you went through it, where Paul and Silas were singing hymns to God. When? Midnight in that jail cell, when they were in the stocks and beaten and bloody, and they're singing hymns to God. I want to be like those guys. I want to be like those Moravians. I want to be like the women and children Moravians as they were singing hymns to God in the midst of that. Such an adamant faith in Christ that nothing phases you, not even death. And what is most incredible to me about the Moravians is that Zinzendorf, the founder of what I would argue is the greatest missions movement that inspired most of of the other missions movements of the last three years. How was he inspired? What inspired Zinzendorf to do this? It was art. It was a painting. A painting is what inspired Zinzendorf. And it was this painting right here. You could still go to Germany and see it. But this is Ecce Homo, the Latin, behold the man, what Pilate said about Jesus to the crowd in John 19. Behold the man. And it was painted by Domenico Fetti, this Italian Catholic uh, painter from the early 1600s. No doubt. Why did he paint this? He painted it to the glory of God. He painted it because he wanted to inspire people. Little did he know, a hundred years after he painted this painting, a hundred years after his death, in 1719, when Zinzendorf was 19 years old, he went, he beheld this painting in a gallery in Dusseldorf, Germany. And the words in Latin is what specifically penetrated his heart like a lightning bolt. He, he could read, we can't read Latin, but he could read Latin. But it says in Latin on the bottom, would, all this I have done for you. Now, what will you do for me? And Zinzendorf answered that question. He took that question very seriously and he answered that question by selling all his wealth and he went to Hernhut and started this missionary movement, the greatest missionary movement the world's seen. He was, as some call him, the rich man who said yes. <laughs> you know, we have the rich young ruler who said no to Jesus. He's the rich man who said yes. And don't miss the fact that art inspired just about all the Protestant missions movements over the last 300 years. If you go back to the source it's this painting. So any, anyone in here artists? I'm not an artist, but I'm just asking anyone here, here artists. You never know what your art may inspire. You have something to paint? Paint it. Paint it to the glory of God. May do something 100 years after your death. I pray there are still some Zinzendorfs and Countess Zinzendorfs in this room. And so I leave you with the challenge from the Ecce Homo. All this I have done for you now. What will you do for me? Let me pray. God in heaven, I thank you. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for waking us up, giving us clear minds to worship you, to understand you, to understand your word, to understand uh, just the taste of what it is that you did for us. And I pray that we would more and more be conformed to the image of your son and understand in the depths of our heart and our soul what it is that Christ did for us on the cross, the love he, sh- he had for us when he shed his blood that he loved us and gave himself up for us. And may that love compel us like Paul, like the Moravians, to go out in Garland, in Texas, in America, all over the world to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth so that poorest villager will one day hear and then Jesus, will, you will return in glory. We pray this in, in the name of Christ. Maranatha. Amen.